Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, in 1980, more than 125,000 refugees fled Fidel Castro's Cuba and came to Florida. We'll talk with Jose Manuel Garcia, author of the book Voices from Mariel. We left uh, Mariel. We left in a, in a family boat with uh, mostly relatives. We didn't have any prisoners. So it was all families and quite a few uh, young kids. We'll discuss Coconut Grove pioneer Ralph Monroe. He was also a noted amateur photographer, and he was one of the first people to bring photography to this part of Florida. And we'll talk about Florida soldier David Moniak, the first Native American graduate of West Point. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. After the Cuban Revolution of 1959 brought Fidel Castro to power, many wealthy Cubans relocated to Miami to wait until the new government fell. Their property in Cuba was confiscated and most never returned. Between 1960 and 1962, more than 14,000 Cuban children were brought to the United States as part of Operation Pedro Pan to avoid their communist indoctrination. In the 1960s and 70s, hundreds of thousands of Cuban political refugees came to Florida on freedom flights and on boats. In 1980, more than 125,000 refugees fled Cuba in overcrowded boats to come to Florida seeking asylum. Jose Manuel Garcia was just a teenager when he became part of the Mariel boat lift. My grandparents had left the country uh, when I was uh, uh, nine months after I was born. So uh, I consider myself one of those uh, Cubans or children, descendants of those Cubans that were not able to leave at the beginning of the revolution, and we stay there. So growing up uh, in Cuba in the 1970s, in many ways, uh, I feel like I didn't have a, a childhood because of the fact that uh, we have been one of those families that had not left when they were supposed to, and I remember uh, as a kid many times experiencing that. So I became aware at a very young age of the fact that I had to be careful, you know, with my friends and with the people around me. Uh, and one of the things that you'll see in the book is uh, just a few days before we left the country, I was actually invited to one of the houses for the uh, CDR, the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution, uh, by one of my friend's mother, who was the person in charge. And uh, the question, uh, they actually tried to convince me to, to stay in the country. So in many ways, it was a, it was a good childhood. Uh, I was not an unhappy child, but, but it was from a very young age, I had to sort of protect myself because of the uh, politics, which is something that shouldn't happen to, to kids. The Exodus movement started at the Peruvian embassy. Demonstrations were held by people who wanted to leave Cuba on boats from Mariel Harbor. These protesters were the target of violence until Fidel Castro decided to let the people who wanted to leave do so. 
it was a time of a lot of changes. Uh, I remember up until maybe a couple of years before, you barely heard anything about the United States. Everything that you heard was negative. It was always attacking, you know, the U.S. And then all of a sudden, this thing happens. Uh, and uh, this went around Cuba. I mean, people were uh, talking about the fact that people had broken into the Peruvian embassy, that uh, people were leaving the country. Uh, it, it was uh, sort of uh, generalized hysteria going through the country. And as soon as I found out that my grandfather, my uncle was coming to get us, uh, that created a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, uh, because of the actos de repudio, the acts of repudio. These were demonstrations organized against the people that were living in the country. And if they found out in time for them to be able to show up at your house and attack your house with rocks, uh, with eggs, and, and uh, basically insults, uh, that was a very scary thing. And I remember as a kid actually having to uh, being recruited at my school to, to do one of these demonstrations. So as you can imagine, it was a, a time of a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty that the same thing that was happening to other families could happen to us as well. Many of the boats leaving Cuba were overloaded with passengers, making the journey from Cuba to Florida a harrowing experience. We left uh, Mariel. Uh, right before we left, our, we left in a, in a family boat with uh, mostly relatives. We didn't have any prisoners, we didn't have, so it was all families and quite a few uh, young kids. Uh, so the captain said to the, uh, the Cuban authorities, you know, this boat is overloaded. It was supposed to have capacity for 20, and it had almost 40 people. Uh, so he said, you know, we, uh, w- how, do, how do we take some of these people and put them in a different boat? And they say, well, absolutely not. If, if they want to uh, go to a different boat, they might have to stay in, the, in Cuba. Who was gonna? Who were you gonna take off the boat? No one. Uh, the next day we left, and uh, the captain was correct. Within an hour and a half, 90 minutes, uh, the boat started sinking. So we had to turn back. So we turned back to the port and stayed at the port uh, another uh, almost four days, waiting to leave the country again. Within uh, a few hours, uh, I would say maybe two, three hours, the boat started catching water quick and uh, we had to be transferred to the other boat. Uh, so to give you an idea of how, I mentioned a few minutes ago that the average journey trip from Cuba took eight to 10 hours. It took us 19 hours, just to give you an idea of how long uh, to get to the U.S. Jose Manuel Garcia produced a documentary and wrote a book called Voices from Mariel, Oral Histories of the 1980 Cuban Boat Lift. Garcia tells his own story and those of other people. While there are common experiences, there are many unique stories as well. As I was working on the book, I wanted to uh, get as much as I could, uh, you know, a pretty wide spectrum of Cuban society. So I was a teenager. There's a few other teenagers in the book. There are people that were left the country because of uh, political, uh, they were political prisoners people that left the country because they were of their sexual orientation, that they were not accepted at the time in Cuba. There were people that left because of religious reasons, people that had uh, spent uh, time in prison camps because of their uh, religious uh, convictions. So I tried to get a wider spectrum of those people, but not just that, another one of the chapters, and this is something, ironically, that had never, uh, some of the people that I have in the book that had never been uh, interviewed and given their testimony are people such as the diplomat that was in the embassy in charge of the crisis. I have the only reporter that was able to get into the embassy 
uh, that the U the Cuban government sort of uh, allowed him to go into the embassy. And when he went into the embassy, he realized that he was going to have to report the reality of what Cubans in the embassy were going through. So I have those testimonies, uh, the testimonies of the uh, people such as myself. I also have the testimony of my uncle, what his experience was like when he went to pick us up. A large number of wealthy and middle-class Cubans emigrated to Florida following the Cuban Revolution. Two decades later, the Mariel Boatlift brought a much more diverse cross-section of the Cuban population here. For the first time, you had Cubans that left from a lot of different walks of life. You had Cubans that were white, you had Cubans that were mestizos, you had Cubans that were black. For the first time, you had large numbers. They say that approximately statistics, uh, close to half of the Cubans that came in 1980 uh, were not only the uh, white Cubans that had left in the, the beginning of the revolution, you had a mix of a lot of different Cubans. Uh, and for the first time uh, in Cuba itself, uh, now you have Cubans that have family outside of the country as a result of the Mariupol lift. Uh, another, another thing that was a profound impact that he had in the, in the Cuban-American community in Miami, that even though they were rejected at first, uh, in, the, in the long run, it showed that it brought a lot of uh, positive things, a lot of uh, artists, a lot of uh, uh, writers, uh, such as Reynaldo Arenas. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, and Cubans that eventually became very, very successful, that have done very well, that have become average. And that is the goal of my book, to get rid of that stigma that everybody that came, uh, these were all criminals. Uh, you know, and this is a stigma that was actually picked up started in Cuba and it was picked up in the U.S. and, and permeated uh, the Cuban-American community for a long time. Of the more than 125,000 refugees of the Mariel Boatlift, only 1,774 were denied U.S. citizenship because they were classified as criminals. Adapting to American culture proved difficult for some of the Marielettos. Some had a hard time integrating with Cubans who had come here before Castro's regime took control. At the very beginning, uh, Jimmy Carter said, we're welcoming these Cubans with open hearts and open arms. Uh, that changed very quickly. And due to the fact that uh, the people that were coming have been Cubans that had lived in Cuba for 20 years in a completely different economic and political system. So uh, that is something that many times people don't really, they take it for granted. They're going from one country to another. Well, in the case of the Marielitos, it was a little bit more complicated than that. These are people that were born at the very beginning of the revolution for the most part, uh, or had grown up with the, uh, with the revolution that were not uh, uh, accustomed to many of the freedoms and privileges, you know what I mean, that the average citizen gets. These were people that have been censored. And that obviously has a psychological impact, uh, you know, in any anybody. And, and that was demonstrated when they came. Some of them did not know how to uh, handle that freedom, so much freedom, uh, and got in trouble within a very short time. Other Mariolettos adapted well. Jose Manuel Garcia became a professor at Florida Southern College in Lakeland. He says that many of those who made the same journey he did in 1980 have become productive members of American society. But it's not only about the success. I mean, it's talking is also the fact that most of the Marielitos that came have become, and they have proven that over time, that they have become average, hardworking citizens. Uh, the crimes that you heard at the very beginning within uh, 1980, 81, 82, which was, remember what I said, a lot of people got into the streets and committed a lot of crimes. 
that subsided. And then what you have had in the 90s were Cubans that were starting to, uh, to be successful, that were starting to be average, normal working citizens. You know, it's not all about success. It's about people that wanted to create a better life for themselves. As Garcia collected oral histories for his documentary and his book, he found that some Mariolettos were very willing to tell their stories, while others were much more reluctant. Believe it or not, you have people that are still here and many years after, uh, when they think of providing their testimony, uh, they're thinking, what is going to happen to the people that are still behind? Am I, how am I going to impact them? And then we had people that basically said, I'm not interested in, or I don't want to, I would love to, but I'm not going to give you the story because of what could happen to my family or if I ever want to go back to Cuba, how is that going to impact me? I did have quite a few people that that, uh, were more than willing to and that thought that what I was doing was a really good thing because there's not a whole lot out there and and they want their kids. And in my dedication in the book, I dedicated the book not uh i actually say you know it's the story of uh, uh it's not just my story it's the story of all marilitos and their descendants uh, and that's my goal for uh, that part of the history to you know their descendants and the cuban community and also americans in, in general to know about this jose manuel garcia is producer of the documentary voices from mariel and the author of the book, Voices from Marielle, Oral Histories of the 1980 Cuban Boat Lift. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, watch archived episodes of our TV series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we're talking about Ralph Monroe, an early pioneer of Coconut Grove. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Uh, Ralph Middleton Monroe was not a native Floridian. He was actually born in New York in 1851, and he grew up on Staten Island, uh, later on Long Island, and became really interested in marine craft and, and sailing ships and, and the design and construction of sailboats. Uh, but he actually got into business while he was early in his in his 20s and early 30s, became a fairly successful uh, businessman, and uh, like a lot of people in the 19th century, decided to travel a little bit, and Florida was a great kind of wild destination. So he decided to, uh, to visit Florida in the 1870s. And within the next few decades, he became uh, a key figure in the development of Dade County, specifically in Coconut Grove and early Miami history. And his connection with Florida, unfortunately, is, kind of has a sad start. He, uh, he came here in 1877 bringing his sick wife, who 
had succumbed to tuberculosis. The recommendation at that time was to, to bring them south to warmer climates. He brought her to Coconut Grove, and unfortunately she died shortly after uh, they arrived, and, and she was buried there. In fact, her, her gravesite is still on the site of the Coconut Grove Public Library. It's one of the oldest known marked graves in Dade County. But he went back to Staten Island, lived there for a few years, but the Florida the lure kind of brought him back, and, and he moved here permanently in, in the late 1880s and again became a uh, major proponent of the early development of Coconut Grove as an, an outpost, kind of a rural settlement. Now, this is prior to the Florida East Coast Railroad actually reaching Dade County. So the only way to get to the Biscayne Bay region was to a steamship to Key West and then sailing these smaller sailing ships up the Keys into Biscayne Bay. And you were essentially isolated. You had very little contact with the outside world, oftentimes for months. Uh, but this is exactly what he was looking for. Now, he came from kind of the, the old uh, transcendentalist sort of school of, of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and, and Henry David Thoreau, who were advocating kind of living within your natural environment. So unlike a lot of early pioneers, he wasn't looking to rapidly develop for agricultural reasons these, these natural resources. He wanted to kind of live within and, and live within the moment. He appreciated the beauty that existed in Dade County in the late 19th century, and um, he tried to, to promote the, the natural environment rather than the economic potential of the region. What's also interesting about Monroe is that, uh, as I said earlier, growing up in, in New York along the, the coast of, of New England up there, he became fascinated with yacht design, and he developed several designs that are unique to the uh, shallow reefs of southeast Florida, uh, the Biscayne Bay region. And he built a number of these boats and, and was a friend of, of Nat Harishoff, the, the famous yacht designer who visited him frequently. So he built these ships and, and also lived within this kind of private Eden in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And you have here Ralph Monroe's autobiography from 1930 called The Commodore Story. Yeah, that's right. What we're looking at is is a first edition of his autobiography. Now, he passed away in 1933. This was published in 1930. So this is really towards the end of his life. He's looking back on all of his accomplishments and in, in his time in Florida. And it's really a fascinating book. And it's one of the very few firsthand, very thorough accounts of what life was like for these early pioneers in this part of Florida. As I said, they were uh, very isolated from the outside world. In fact, there's a photograph here of the entire Biscayne Bay population as he calls, and that's uh, Miami, Lemon City, Coconut Grove, all of these small communities. And it only numbers about a few dozen people. Uh, and they're all uh, centered around the Peacock Inn, which was the first inn or hotel that he actually helped to build. Now, later, he built a home called the Barnacle, located in uh, what is now Coconut Grove. And he lived there. He built a uh, boat building shop. There are several photographs of his home. Uh, and I mentioned these photographs because Monroe, not only was he a, a writer and he was a, became a civic leader and was actually the first Commodore of the Biscayne. Cane Bay Yacht Club, hence the name, The Commodore Story. He was also a noted amateur photographer, and he was one of the first people to bring photography to this part of Florida. And it chronicled not only the development that was going on and, and some of his yacht designs, but also photographed the people. We have these wonderful, intimate portraits of uh, the peacocks, of the brickles, of the Seminole Indian traders that were coming in from the Everglades and trading with these early pioneers, folks that were just visiting from other parts of the world he would photograph. Uh, so we have a great photographic record, but we also have this wonderful narrative that's uh, encapsulated here in this book. And I'll read just quickly a passage. This is from his first visit to the Biscayne Bay 
Tri-State Region in 1877. And he says here, quote, Nothing, of course, suggested the future population of Biscayne Bay in 1877. No more isolated region was to be found in the country, and scarcely any less productive. The few hardy settlers depended mainly on the products of the sea, together with plentiful game for food, unquote. And this is the introduction. This is what he first observes. He doesn't talk about the mosquitoes and the harsh climate, but he really appreciates the natural environment. And that comes through in this narrative. It's really a fascinating read. And Ralph Monroe's home has been preserved and can be visited today, right? Yes, that's right. His family actually lived in what became known as the Barnacle uh, up until the 1970s. And it was after that point the family sold the property to the state of Florida. It became a state historic park, and you can actually visit it today. It is really one of the few remaining natural environmental settings. You can really get a feel for what it's like. You can immerse yourself in the natural environment of, of Southeast Florida as it would have looked when these pioneers first visited in the 19th century. And it's kind of surrounded by the metropolis of Miami. If you get a chance to visit the Barnacle, you can really transport yourself back to 19th century life. You can get a feel for what it was like for these early pioneers who had first developed the region. And it's surrounded by the the metropolis that has become the greater Miami area. But for a brief period of time, you can transport yourself back to uh, what it was like for these early pioneers. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. If you'd like to see Ralph Monroe's photographs, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. David Moniak was the first Native American graduate of West Point and is memorialized at Florida National Cemetery. Holly Baker is a public historian at the University of Central Florida and has this report. The History Department at the University of Central Florida recently partnered with the Department of Veterans Affairs to bring veterans' stories to life through the Veterans Legacy Program. In Florida, the Veterans Legacy Program uncovered the stories of hundreds of veterans buried at Florida National Cemetery and St. Augustine National Cemetery. While researching veterans at Florida National Cemetery in Bushnell, the Veterans Legacy Program team from UCF discovered the story of David Moniak, the first Native American to graduate from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in New York. Dr. Barbara Gannon, military historian and associate professor at the University of Central Florida, told me more about the story of David Moniak. David Moniak was the first Native American to graduate from West Point. He did so in 1822. At West Point, he was a very good student, and that to me is very crucial because many people failed at West Point because of academics. So it's quite an accomplishment that he managed that curriculum. He resigned six months after he graduated from West Point because he had to go home. There were troubles. His father ran the business and wasn't doing a very good job. So he left the Army, and he went home, and he ran the business. As Dr. Gannon explains, David Moniak came from a prominent Creek family. As a Native American military officer, David Moniak struggled with balancing service to his country with loyalty to his family. He was a Creek, one of the five civilized tribes, and they tended to intermarry. So he is Creek. His father was of Creek and Dutch ancestry, his mother of Creek and Scottish ancestry. So he was related to a Creek leader, William Rutherford. That was his uncle. 
He also was related to Alexander McGilvray, who negotiated a treaty with the state of New York in 1790. And the whole idea of his career at West Point really began there because in the treaty there was a clause where they would educate Creek youths at the expense of the United States government. And that's how he got into West Point. Otherwise, I don't see how he would have been admitted in that time period. So he's a very prominent Creek. He's got ancestors who are of European descent, and he is a prominent person in the Creek tribe. So after he left West Point and he came home, he married a woman, and she was related to the great Seminole leader who he will be fighting in the Second Seminole War, Osceola. So his family is a very complex story of being both Native American and European American and the kind of ways that some Native Americans tried to assimilate into the broader European culture and in some cases were successful. After graduating from West Point in 1822, David Moniak's family obligations caused him to resign from his position as a lieutenant in the U.S. 6th Infantry Regiment. Moniak returned home to Alabama, where he ran the family's cotton plantation and bred thoroughbred racehorses. During the Second Seminole War, David Moniak once again answered the call to service. In 1836, Moniak was commissioned as captain. Three months later, he was promoted to major. He commanded a Creek Volunteer Cavalry Unit, and he was the only Native American among the officers. Dr. Gannon told me more about the Second Seminole War. There was an Indian removal policy. And that would affect people like the Creeks and the Cree and the Cherokee. It was a little different with the Seminole because the Seminole also had black Seminoles, escaped slaves, escaped to their land. Part of the reason why the Second Seminole War will be fought to remove the Seminoles is really about black Seminoles because the slave owners in the southern states like Alabama and Georgia knew that some of their slaves saw that as an escape route and were hiding there. So it was Indian removal like the other Indian removals of the time, but it was also about slavery and protecting slavery. So you always have to remember it was not only a war about Native Americans, but a war about slavery. And it will be a war the Native Americans do relatively well in and tend to win a number of battles or at least keep themselves from being removed. So the whole war will be very long. And in the end, in many ways, the United States will not accomplish what it wants to. David Moniak's story ends at the Battle of Wahoo Swamp on November 21, 1836, in present-day Sumter County, Florida. During the battle, Seminole warriors shot and killed David Moniak as he led his Creek militia through the swamp near the Withlacoochee River. Dr. Gannon. Battle of Wahoo Swamp was very interesting because... They wanted to get into the swamps. They wanted to destroy the farms and the places where the Seminoles grew food. So the idea is that if you destroy their crops, they'll starve. Now, this is a swamp, which probably tells you everything you want to know about how difficult it was to operate. It was actually the second time they tried to take this swamp. They had failed the first time. And David Moniak was a major. He was in command of Creek Militia. And he led them in a charge, and he was shot and killed in the swamp. Eventually, the U.S. Army wins, but because it's a swamp and it has no provisions, it has to retreat. So it does not accomplish its goal of forcing the Seminoles to remove themselves and to stop black Seminoles and capture them. 
David Moniak is memorialized at Florida National Cemetery in Bushnell, Florida, on the edge of the Withlacoochee State Forest. The inscription on his tombstone, written by Major General T.S. Jessup, reads, He was as brave and gallant a man as ever drew a sword or faced an enemy. To read David Moniak's biography and the stories of other veterans in Florida National Cemetery and St. Augustine National Cemetery, visit www.vlp.cah.ucf.edu. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, radio and podcast producer with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. You can also join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.